to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Hello, I'm Jen Betts, Assistant Director of the International Peace Studies Concentration Master of Global Affairs degree program at the Croc Institute. I'm so glad to be sitting down today with three of our esteemed alumni from the Crocs Master in International Peace Studies program. All three of our guests are working on issues of environmental justice and peace building, and we're going to have a fascinating conversation today. Joining me for this conversation, we have Raul Campuzano, who is the academic director for the Master's in Environmental Law at the Universidad de Desarrollo in Chile and is a 1989 Peace Studies alum. Welcome, Raul. Thank you for having me here, Jennifer. Next, we have Katie Conlin. She's a 2014 alum who is currently working as a National Geographic Explorer and leading an expedition and research project on plastic reduction and plastic pollution awareness in the Himalayas. Welcome, Katie. Hi, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. And last but not least, Valerie Hickey is a 2000 alum who now works as the practice manager for environment, natural resources, and blue economy at the World Bank. Welcome, Valerie. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Happy New Year. An absolute privilege to be with you. Great. Thanks to all three of you. And we'll go ahead and get started with our questions. To start with, I'm wondering if each of you might be willing to give us some insight into your career path after graduating from the CROC and what your current work entails. Were you already thinking about environmental justice and peace building as a master's student and or did a further experience shape your path? Raul, do you want to start us out? Sure. My pleasure. Well, ecology and the environment have always been a core part of my concerns, my inquiry, thoughts, and actions. I studied law on the early 80s in my home country, Chile. At that time, there weren't environmental law courses, and those I had to learn by myself. I met people whom I learned from. Notre Dame was key in many aspects of my life. One of them was the realization of the consilience of knowledge, borrowing that concept, consilience, from Edward O. Wilson, the famous biologist who recently passed away. It took me many years to realize how convergent peace and ecology are, how much they relate, how much they need each other, and how much sense and strength provoke when they are understood in conjunction. After graduating from Croc, I continued my studies at Leiden University, the Netherlands. I had to learn that language. There, in spite of the fact that I studied diverse legal subjects, I got my career specialization, and that was international environmental law. Those were years of strengthening my knowledge of the law. When I got back to my country, there was democracy. I joined civil service, and I worked in several positions, our national EPA, Foreign Affairs and others. At Foreign Affairs, I'd work in East Asia, and that helped me to connect with East Asia values and spiritualities. Japan made a strong impression on me, and especially their idea of the sacredness of nature. In parallel to all that, I pursued an academic career, and since 2011, I am the academic director for the Master's in Environmental Law at the Universidad del Desarrollo in Chile. From that platform, 
I do most of my academic and professional activities. Raul, thank you. That is an amazing path that you've had. Katie, could you share with us some of your story? Yeah, sure. Pleasure. Yeah, the environment was very much on my mind as a as a Croc student and even, even beforehand. But during the master's program, I for the internship, I went to Bhutan because I was really interested in the Gross National Happiness Commission because Bhutan has forefronted the environment and culture as two of their four main pillars in GNH. So I didn't end up writing my master's dissertation on the GNH commission. I ended up writing it on the nexus of peace building and climate change. But the environment wove a strand throughout my time at Croc. And then when I finished with Croc, I went straight into a PhD program at Portland State, and it was a a National Science Foundation-funded interdisciplinary sustainability program. And when I went in, I thought that I would continue with the climate trajectory, but then as I was honing my vision for what I would write my dissertation on, I came back to the idea of plastic waste and plastic pollution. And that was something that I had first become... Well, I'm originally from Portland, Oregon, and so and Portland has a very long legacy of recycling and environmental concerns. So I would say that, that I was aware of materials issues since I was a young child, but when I really became aware of waste as a global critical issue, I was in the Peace Corps in West Africa, and this was 15 years earlier. And I had become kind of critical of aid agencies with certain things like at the time there was a product called Plumpy Nut that I was really critical of, of this this, uh, product that was used for health. But then at the end of the day, all of these sachets just ended up in the environment. And I was also really critical of at the time of, of multinational companies that were touting themselves for going into emerging markets and supposedly bringing products that people needed. Companies like YoPlay, but they they would package their goods in plastic sachets that would ultimately end up in the environment. So it was kind of interesting that, that at the end of the day, I circled back around to these plastic issues. And my field work for my dissertation was in Sri Lanka. And during the summers, I was doing some side projects in India, and now I've kind of slowly shifted most of my work to focus focus in India. Thanks so much, Katie. And Valerie, could you share about your path? It's so hard to follow up on those two incredible people, but I'm sure like them and like most everybody who ends up at Croc, I was one of those obnoxious kids who grew up wanting to make the world a better place, not knowing how. And there were basically two issues that I thought at the time were in conflict that animated my desire to fix the world. I wanted to fix the environment and I wanted to take people out of poverty. Of course, as a kid, I had no idea how to do either. So I ended up at Croc and realized that environmental justice was actually the bridge between the two. That in so many ways, it's the poor who bear the brunt of environmental degradation. And they're also the ones on whose shoulders we expect them to carry the weight of conserving the environment. And it seems so utterly unfair and so utterly wrong, this decoupling of the people who are benefiting from the wonderful things a good, clean environment 
provides and the people who are left behind when we do things to the environment that are bad. And so CROC really helped me think through some of those ideas and gave me a lot of the tools to think through how to affect change. I think it's the most wonderful, one of the wonderful things about CROC is it's so proactive in terms of giving people tools to affect change. When I left CROC, I went to work for NGOs, first with World Wildlife Fund and after that with Wildlife Conservation Society, known in the environmental community as BINGOs, big international NGOs. I was working a lot in East Asia, looking at peace building in the environment, everything from how do you deal with human wildlife conflict in places like Nepal or Laos, to thinking about how do you deal with environmental degradation and the social unrest that comes from that, particularly at the urban-rural interface in, in places like Vietnam, where cities were spreading, where urbanization was happening at the expense of rural and agricultural communities. After spending several years doing that, I realized that I needed to become bilingual in both peace studies and, and natural sciences. Because one of the things that stopped me from being more credible in my field was the fact that I wasn't a biologist. I wasn't somebody who was an environmental scientist. I didn't have that warrant of credibility. So I went back to Duke University, got a PhD in environmental sciences. And as part of that was thinking through, where did I wanna spend my career? Did I wanna spend it on the front lines where it's super hard, but you're often working on the symptoms? you're working on the environmental degradation in a particular project? Or did I want to step back and try and work on the disease, work at the systems level to really try and affect change so that environmental degradation wasn't the easy and obvious thing to do? And so I ended up being lucky enough to find a job at the World Bank. And that's where I am today, where I lead all of our environmental work in Latin America and the Caribbean, looking both at ensuring that every dollar we spend Every dollar we invest in poverty alleviation development does not make the environment worse off, but also making sure that we can use investing in the environment as a way to improve competitiveness, improve growth, and deliver jobs for people in areas where they have nothing beyond nature, beyond their natural capital, on which to build a path out of poverty. Valerie, thank you so much. And there is so much wisdom in what you just said too about the decoupling of, you know, where the burden of a clean environment is. And it's often on the people who are already the most marginalized and suffering, you know, from low income. So thank you for bringing that up. You mentioned that you are in the World Bank. And of, would you be able to maybe talk a little bit about both what you feel the particular niche is of the World Bank in terms of environmental peacebuilding work as the largest multilateral development bank in, in the world? And in addition as to what do you think the World Bank does best in terms of environmental peacebuilding and or environmental justice? You know, it's been super interesting, Jennifer. I've been at the World Bank now since 2003. And I've watched almost in real time an evolution happen to how the World Bank thinks about the environment and about environmental justice, environmental peace building, though those aren't terms that are part of the vocabulary of the World Bank. Nonetheless, it's, it's inherent in a lot of the activities we do. When I started in 2003, the World Bank was very obviously focused on poverty alleviation through growth. What mattered was growth. If only economies could grow, then everybody would be better off. And there's some sense to that, but of course it left an awful lot of people out. And environment was very much a niche activity, largely focused on conservation, largely on the margins of our work. 
since then, in the past sort of, what's that, 18 or 19 years, we've stopped thinking about growth as an end in itself and really talking about green, resilient, and inclusive development. That growth alone is not enough because that leaves some people out because it doesn't mean everybody's included. And we've seen that where we've seen so many countries, even as they've reduced poverty, inequality has remained and in some places increased. You have communities who are locked in poverty and see no pathway out, even as the middle class elsewhere in the country can grow. And so it's been wonderful to see the World Bank really bring environment into the center of what it does. And in many ways, it does it in three ways. And I think it, it does them very well in each way. The first way really, and this is one where we lead, not just among development banks, but I think among bilateral lenders, and increasingly among those good private sector players who are working in the development space, in the emerging economy space. And that's through what we call our environmental and social framework, what we used to call our safeguards. These are basically 10 policies, I call them our 10 commandments, which make sure that for every dollar the bank invests, the people that are touched by that investment and their environment are better off at the end of that investment, not worse off. So we leave nobody behind, and the environment can't be destroyed or degraded as a result of our investment. And that environmental and social framework is something now that is followed and adopted through many, all of the other development banks, but even private sector banks under the equator principles, where they apply that same rigor to ensuring that every dollar spent is spent in a way that protects people and protects their environment. The second way we really work on environmental peace building, environmental justice, is making sure that those communities who protect the environment, who live with their environment, can actually reap the benefits of that environment in a sustainable way. That we can help them transform that natural capital, which is the wealth of poor countries and poor communities, much more so than physical capital often, like infrastructure. Their natural capital is so much a bigger part of their wealth. Transforming that into a pathway out of poverty. Everything from helping them think through how do you take non-timber forest products and create markets that will provide jobs and revenues? How do you do sustainable forest management? How do you think about plantations? How do you think about small-scale agriculture and agroforestry? What does that look like? What about fisheries? How do you make sure people have an opportunity to do that better, do it more sustainably, get income out of it? So having green as an engine of growth for forest-dependent people, for, for, for coastal communities for rural communities is so important. And then finally, the bank is increasingly doing a lot of work on preventing degradation. So this is especially in the pollution space where we're doing a lot of work, whether it's on air pollution or water pollution, because we've seen the impacts on everything from labor productivity, because people are taking sick days, to education outcomes, where kids who are exposed to air pollution end up having asthma, end up missing so many school days, they're simply not getting the education they need to become competitive in their labor markets to lead a dignified, full life when they're older. And so that's something where we're now doing a lot of work to prevent that degradation, to work with communities to make sure they have the tools, they have the technical knowledge and the capital, the money, to actually make sure their environment is clean. Valerie, thank you so much. It was tremendous to hear about the journey of the World Bank, especially as you've been experiencing it. 
uh, as we're on the subject of air pollution and a country that has been facing that very much is India. Katie, let's jump to you and talk a little bit more about your work. You gave us a wonderful answer as to how you ended up in materials pollution, but how the Himalayas. We'd love to hear a little bit more about what drew you there and also where where are you finding hope there and or concern? Um, yeah, so the Himalayas, I, I first went to the Himalayas 12 years ago, and I feel like it has a, a magnetic pull for me. Maybe it's something to do with all the minerals and rocks in the mountains, but it's just one of the most beautiful places on the planet, uh, not just for nature, but all of the people that are that are living there. I, I love the village lifestyles, the, the, the rustic mountain lifestyle, and I just keep on going back and, and back. I spent, I, I first spent time in Nepal, and then, as I said, for the croc, I was, I was in Bhutan for six months, and increasingly in my years in India, I've spent lots of time in Ladakh and Himachal and Uttarakhand. Um, so it's, it's just a really um, incredible place on this planet. And I was thinking about how I could um, put my expertise to use in that area because I love the area. And so I guess there's also a personal pull for me to do something positive for the environment there because I don't want to see it um, degraded. And um, so my work, I I am really, in, in my project in the Himalayas, I'm really working with the local environmental champions and the local heroes there. So, so um, e even though the topic is challenging, I'm working with the people that are, that are working to bring about change in the region. So I think that fundamentally the, the project is anchored on where I see hope and where I see the bright spots. And um, basically I'm, uh, myself and my team, we're making 23 short um, videos talking about these different environmental champions and their projects that they're doing um, in the Northern Indian Himalayan states and also in Nepal and Bhutan. And we're letting each project tell their own story of what they're doing for waste and plastic action. So instead of highlighting a typical top-down kind of Western-centric approach to waste management, we're doing a completely bottom-up um, awareness-raising uh, project to tell these inspiring stories and also to link together this movement of people that are working for the betterment of their communities. Um, and we hope ultimately that it will help inspire people not only in the Himalayan region, but people that are working on environmental issues around the globe and also bring more support and, and, and help for these projects. Um, and, and just in general, my work, it really centers on the principle of collaboration and partnerships. Uh, it's possibly maybe a feminist approach to, to research and project work where, um, you know, I'm, I'm the only Western person that's on the team. Everyone else that I'm working with is, is Indian or their local partners. Um, my team, I've, I've made a concerted effort to, um, to employ people that are, are from India and um, that are women researchers. Um, and so 
I also see hope in that, that, that you know, we're, we're helping to support the movement and, and help people that are working in this area and build the environmental community together. Thanks so much, Katie. There is a lot of hope there. Let's just turn to Raul. Raul, as you told us before, you're working at the edu- you're working really at the intersection of environmental justice and law. Could you tell us a bit more about the role of environmental law in terms of addressing critical environmental questions? Yes, the law uh, is a central tool to face challenges of the environment from the environment. This is so both in national law and international law. Uh, the great environmental challenges like climate change, loss of biological diversity, pollution of water, soil, air, uh, are all global by nature. Therefore, they require broad international agreements, such as the Convention on Climate Change, the Paris Agreement, and the Convention on Biological uh, Diversity. The profound relationship between ecology and peace is becoming clearer each day. Environmental justice is a concept that plays at the core of the relationship between peace and ecology. The Escazú Treaty is a clear example of this uh, relationship. The regional agreement on access to information public participation and justice in environmental matters in Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, better known as Escazú Treaty, aims to guarantee the full and effective implementation in Latin America and the Caribbean region of the rights of access to environmental information, public participation in the environmental decision-making process, and access to justice in environmental matters and also the creation and strengthening of capacities and cooperation, contributing to the protection of the right of every person of present and future generations to live in a healthy environment and to sustainable development. Um, As you know, this is the regional answer to principle 10 of Rio Declaration of 1992. The European answer is the ORUS Convention of 1998. One interesting aspect of the Escazú Treaty is Article 9 about human rights defenders in environmental matters. Sadly, it is a fact that in Latin America, as in some other regions of the world, environmental activists are in danger. There are threats, violence, injuries, and even death. Uh, There is certain invisibility to this trend, and Escazú Uh, treaty attempts to address the issue. The treaty commands the signing countries to take measures to recognize, protect, and promote all the rights of human rights defenders in environmental matters, including their right to life, personal integrity, freedom of opinion, and expression, peaceful assembly and association, and free movement, as well as their ability to exercise their access rights, taking into account its international obligations in the field of human rights, its constitutional principles, and the basic concept of its legal system. 
Raul, thank you so much, especially for including the threat that environmental defenders are constantly under. I think it's something that we oftentimes are not aware of enough in the U.S. So I'm so glad that you that you brought forth that to us today. Raul, I do want to stay with you for a minute because Chile has also been in the news quite a bit recently with the a new president and an overwhelmingly passed referendum to finally write a new constitution and replace the 1981, which was the 1980 constitution, which was enacted, of course, under Pinochet. Mm. Uh, the former constitution, interestingly enough, did set forth the right to live in an environment free of pollution, as well as the duty of the government to ensure the protection of nature. What are you hoping to see? What are other environmental justice lawyers hoping to see in the new constitution that Chile will will be undertaking? Well, <laughs> our hopes are high and ambitious. We would like an ecological constitution rather than a couple of articles referring to the environment, I would like a comprehensive and consistent ecological approach. The environment is not just a secluded aspect of our national life, but something that permeates to all corners of society. Therefore, I believe there should incorporate values and principles. Certainly, there is a technical aspect of the environmental affair, and there are other values and other principles to conciliate. But I do not believe there are aspects of the environmental core that conflicts with a free, open, and diverse society. In particular, the issue of environmental conflict should be at the center of this consideration environmental conflict at the local, national, and global level. Furthermore, the whole world is confronting the challenge of climate change. This is an issue that should be addressed at the highest level, in our case, at constitutional level. It is a challenge. Um, a little bit at the same time, I'd say it is an opportunity. And certainly, it is also a responsibility, isn't it? Now, once that I said that, we should also be aware of a reality check fact. Writing something in a constitution doesn't automatically translate in a better environmental performance. Uh, Yale University publishes periodically a country environmental performance. Let's have a look of the latest publication. The best environmental performance, 2020, uh, is Denmark. Now, Denmark constitution does not even mention the word environment in its text. On the other hand, one constitution that devotes many pages and articles to environmental issues is the constitution of Ecuador. Sadly, Yale Index placed Ecuador in position 56. What can we conclude from this? I believe several things. First, there does not seem to be a direct correlation between the way in which the environment is regulated in the constitution and the performance of that country. Second, a deeper and more exhaustive analysis is required to draw assertive interpretation and conclusions. Third, it seems 
that environmental performance requires more than recognition at the constitutional level. It could be understood that it is a necessary requirement, but not sufficient, and that more elements are required to point to its effectiveness. For example, adequate environmental laws, good public environmental policies, good control systems, environmental citizens' culture, a culture that also integrates the idea of environmental duties, and also the existence of environmental ethics, a bioethics chaired by the citizens of the country. Countries that show a high degree of environmental performance and few or no constitutional environmental norms tend to have incorporated into their legal system the main international environmental treaties, such as the Climate Change Convention, Biodiversity Convention, and so on. This brings us to the relevance of international environmental law in the environmental performance of countries. Raul, thank you so much. So important. And I'm going to ask, though, a hard question to all of you now, because you've already done so well and spoken so eloquently between your work and the field of peace studies. So now to, to create a harder task, if you could only highlight one particular pressing question or topic that you think the field of peace studies must pay attention to in the realm of environmental justice, what would you say? Katie, let's start with you this time. Sure. Well, I think it's really interesting that are are really uh, salient and important that, you know, last year in in 2021, the Human Rights Council declared that having a clean and healthy and sustainable environment is a human right. So that in and of itself um, puts the environment uh, right in the forefront for peace builders and peacemakers. So what does it mean to to have a sustainable um, community and lifestyle? But I think even more important, what does it mean to help steward regenerative communities and lifestyles? Because I think, you know, so many places around the globe, especially India, where I've been living, you know, we're not even at a baseline of, of healthy environments for people to live in. So Delhi, for instance, I mean, the air is so polluted, it's, it, it, you could say it's a human rights violation. Similarly, the Ganga, you have one to three billion pieces of microplastic that are flowing out of the Ganga every single day of the year. So is that a human rights violation? Um, so how can, I, I would pose this question of for, peace, for peacemakers, how can we start thinking even beyond sustainability to think about how we can help regenerate and steward um, healthy ecological systems and not put environment be behind uh, development concerns or behind economic concerns. The environment should not be the externality of the peace processes, but it should be um, a first and foremost, as Raul was saying, it should be centered in, in all of the thinking and, and not put on the sideline. Thank you so much, Katie. Valerie? So I know one of the topics that Peace Studies is looking at and something that's very real, present and urgent right now across the world is the issue of the fraying social contract. And the fact there is so much social unrest in so many places because 
you know, there, there's a sense that government is failing ordinary people. It's not able to provide basic services. It's not able to provide people dignified livelihoods, dignified uh, jobs, that there's decreasing social space. When Raul was talking about the threat against environmental defenders, it's true everywhere. There's threats against people who speak up. People feel less free to speak up. And then there's a real uptick in crime and violence in places. And what we'd hoped would be a development dividend across the world is there was more people in the middle class. We thought one of the results would be people could live in relative safety and security, and that hasn't happened. And I think if Peace Studies really wants to look and, and study deeply the issue of how to rebuild that uh, social contract, as Raoul said, the environment touches everything. And I think environment has to be part of that answer, because when we look at things like the ability of government to provide basic services, dirty air, dirty water is an obvious case in point where government is failing. And so cleaning that up is a way for the government to show that they can do something about something and deliver real change and real progress for people. Same thing in terms of, of, of creating space for people to speak up. The Eskazu agreement, the Aarhus agreement that Raoul mentioned are so important as a start to give people the space to speak up. And now governments have to follow up the regulation with having credible institutions who can actually enforce that legislation. And the type of information technology that allows citizens to actually access the information and make it readable, make it digestible. And that's a space where you can show that government is willing to, to listen to people, is willing to provide the information for an informed dialogue. And then finally, of course, on the crime and violence, something that we see a lot in our work on the international wildlife trafficking poaching area is how much crime and violence is introduced into very vulnerable rural communities by these poachers. And again, a place where we're seeing the social contract fraying because the government isn't able to do anything. Or in fact, it's the government response that is so militarized that itself is creating more violence, more insecurity. And so those are areas where I think I would love to see peace studies as they think about the social contract and strengthening it, including environmental dimensions. Such good points. Thank you, Valerie. Raul, what would you say? I say that um, peace studies and environmental justice are two sides of the same coin. Uh, therefore, my first suggestion would be to put a close attention to this relationship and integrate ecology and environment and the environment as formal studies in the curriculum. Um, I would like to highlight climate change studies as a core subject within the program. Uh, climate change is perhaps uh, the biggest challenge the world is facing right now. And if not the biggest, it clearly, according to me, makes it to the top three. Furthermore, uh, climate change connects with several other peace studies concerns like migration, social conflict, and justice. Uh, environmental conflict and environmental justice should also be a main field of peace studies. Both disciplines converge here with ease. Uh, overall, my suggestion would be integrating environmental ethics and bioethics to peace studies. I believe it is in this topic wherein peace studies could best contribute to environmental law and policy studies.
Thank you so much. I think all three of you have really pointed to the interconnectedness of our lives with the earth and all of these urgent issues that that we're facing as a human as and as a more than human community. Um, I did want to ask, and in some ways, some of you, Katie, you already pointed to this a bit as you talked about working with the communities, but I'd love to know if you all might want to bring an additional person into this studio. If there is one person with whom you have worked who has given you completely new eyes or a different perspective into environmental justice, is, is there somebody that you would love to have our listeners be able to hear from? Uh, Katie, do you want to begin? Sure. Um, yeah, that's a very challenging um, question for me because I think, um, especially with with work on waste and plastics, um, this is a topic that is normally externalized, right? We try to send waste and pollution away from us. We try not to see it. Um, and so anytime that we're trying to look at it critically, we are taking a new perspective on it. We're having a new approach. We're bringing it closer to us. So I think this is one of the the core components of the work is, is, um, you know, storytelling and and telling the narrative that helps people see these issues. So I think everybody that is working on this issue has a different perspective that they're bringing into the lens. Um, But I think some of the really incredible work that's been done over the last several years um, has had to do especially with film um, because it, it helps to bring this topic um, to more audiences. So for instance, uh, my colleagues at Break Free From Plastic that put together the story of plastic film, um, that is available online. If you haven't seen that, that uh, really highlights the global environmental justice aspect of plastic pollution, and of course, linking it to climate change because the whole process from extraction all the way um, until we dispose of plastic waste um, puts carbon into the atmosphere and pollution into the groundwater, into the soil, et cetera, et cetera. Um, More closer to home, there's another environmental organization called Cafeteria Culture, And they've worked with a group of fifth graders in Brooklyn, and they have a great film called Microplastic Madness. And the fifth graders are really the star of the show there. They show uh, their whole process of their whole evolution, understanding about um, plastic and waste issues in New York and how ultimately they end up going to City Hall. And so they're, they're doing their own policy advocacy. Um, So those are two really good examples about if you want to, kind of get into the the plastic and waste issue, I I recommend students watch those. Thank you, Katie. Raul, let's go to you next. Who would would you bring with you? Which organization would you have here today? (laughs) Well, um, again, that's a tricky question and so difficult to answer. Um, First, I'd like to say that uh, there are so many people uh, who have inspired me I'd say that everything I've done and achieved has been thanks to people who have helped me and inspired me. Uh, I'm I'm the product of many people who have walked life uh, before me, and uh, and I'm deeply indebted to to all of them. Several of them are Chileans, uh, but there are people from all over the world. Um, Then, 
uh, there are professors, academics, uh, like Hans Hermers, Niels Blocker, Marcel Wiesenburg, and, and many others, certainly everyone at Kropp Institute that I am uh, deeply indebted to. Um, I remember um, um, a guy from, from ND, uh, Brother Basil, uh, he made a big, deep impression on me uh, and, and, and his ideas about ecology and nature. Um, and, and I'd like to connect with that uh, uh, something. Um, from, my, from my high school years, uh, I read uh, French philosopher Teilhard de Chardin, and, and I got interested in his understanding of the noosphere concept. Uh, the idea of this noosphere uh, was originally coined by the Russian biochemist uh, Vladimir Vernatsky. Uh, noosphere is the new state of the biosphere, something like uh, a planetary sphere of reason. From there, I found the text of uh, Thomas Berry, uh, a disciple of the Chardin. One of the of, of his books uh, made a strong impression on me. The dream. Of the Earth. This is the <laughs> this is the book. Um, Barry uh, suggests that our relationship with the Earth involves something more than pragmatic use, academic understanding, or aesthetic appreciation. A truly human intimacy with the Earth and with the entire natural world is needed. That's that idea uh, really struck. On me. Barry says that we humans uh, created long ago a story, and that story helped us to navigate life and the world. However, it seems that that old story does no longer answer the challenges of today. And then we need a new story. That new story could be a new understanding of ecology and bioethics. Uh, the fact is, uh, anecdotically, that uh, last year, 2021, in the middle of lockdown, uh, and therefore with some free time, I enrolled in three online courses offered by Yale University, imparted by Professor Mary Evelyn Tucker. She was a disciple of late Thomas Berry, and I could finally connect all the dots between the noosphere, ecology, bioethics, and environmental law and policy. Uh, this is a collateral effect of the pandemic. I'm happy to have experienced. Raul, thank you so much. I both want a book list from each of you and also feel like we need to have a conversation with each of you that could last many hours. Valerie, let's turn to you though. Who would you bring with you into the studio today? So I had mentioned earlier that when I was young, I was very obnoxious and I'm a bit of an obnoxious adult. So I'm going to give you an obnoxious answer first and then a real one. And this actually came to me particularly as I was listening to Katie, because she comes across, Katie, you come across so much talking about hope and you have a joy about you, which is often so much missing, I think, from our discussions around the environment. We tend to be Cassandra's talking about doom and gloom and how terrible things are going to be if we don't do anything. And so the person I would have loved to bring with me in my dream world, obviously, would have been, of course, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, may rest in peace, because there was a man who paired irrepressible joy with a limitless anger at injustice and the ability to be angry at what's gone wrong with the world and yet be a joyful human being 
and talk more about the hope and how things can get better rather than about how things will get worse. And I think it's something we have to do more in the environment because people aren't inspired by fear. They're not inspired by threats of how bad things will be. They're inspired by hope, by the fact that things can get better if we do the right thing. And I think we have to do more of that. Of course, in the real world, one of the people who very recently has really thought me to think a little bit differently is a woman called Jennifer, uh, excuse me, not Jennifer, Joni Seeger. She's a professor at Bentley University in Boston, and she brings a gender lens to work on environment. She's been helping us think through how do we think about gender when it comes to the environment and how both men and women interact differently with the environment, whether it's their ownership of natural resources, whether it's what they need from the responses. And that's been something I hadn't done a lot of thinking about, and it's so important. I mean, she gives us so many great lessons in terms of just poaching again, something we do a lot of work on, how so many young boys are actually coerced into poaching by shaming them and saying, you're not man enough if you can't do this. And what does that mean in terms of how you create a response to stop that? Or women are sexually coerced into compliance with poaching or being complicit with it or being silent about it. And, and you know, she introduced, she, she, she opened her eyes to something called sex for fish in West Africa, which is something we'd never thought about. We, we think a lot in West Africa along the coast about how fish stocks are disappearing. There's a real crisis in, in fisheries. And as a result, men go out in the boats and fish and women are, are at the ports. They're there at the landing sites and they sell the fish. But because there are fewer fish, the men get to choose the women they want to give the fish to. And they're making that choice based on who's going to have sex with them. Not all the men, of course, but some of them. And so as we think about our response to this crisis, it's not just a response of fixing the fishery. We have to think about how do you rebuild community relations that have become so fractured and so violent? And how do you think about the needs of these women at the same time of the needs of the actual fishery? And so having that gendered lens to me has been wonderful. And Joni is one of those women who is an incredible brain, incredible intellect, but also is someone who has that irrepressible joy about her. So I think she'd be a wonderful guest. Valerie, thank you so much. You keep reminding me of uh, the line in one of my in one of my favorite poems by Wendell Berry, which is uh, "Be be joyful, though you have considered all the facts," which I think is something we we may need. Um, but sticking on maybe a difficult topic, as, as we just discussed, as you all know, as we all know, we continue to be going through a global pandemic. And in some ways, the pandemic perhaps has also given us the opportunity to really see ecological issues tied up in this. And <clears throat> I'd love if you could speak to if you're seeing any of those issues intersecting with your work on environmental justice. Has this in any way impacted your day-to-day -day work? Besides, of course, perhaps more Zoom meetings, which we all are very familiar with. But Valerie, could you start for us? So I want to take up a topic that Katie had mentioned earlier, and it's waste management, and in particular, medical waste management and plastics waste management. For very good reasons during the pandemic, and thanks to the, the really strong support that lots of institutions and governments did to provide the care needed for people sick with COVID, and then of course provide vaccinations, there's a huge amount of, of 
personal protective equipment, single-use plastics that are now out in the environment. And there's a huge additional amount of medical waste. And that's okay in countries like the US or Europe where you have very well-functioning solid waste management, medical waste management systems. Very different in many developing and emerging economies where solid waste management was already something that was not particularly robust and was often completely absent in rural areas and in poorer areas. And so this is one of the things at the bank we've been working a lot on. Since April 2020, we have invested $157 billion in COVID response and vaccines across the developing world. And we've, for all of that money, we've made sure that part of that money is going towards medical waste management and thinking through how do you do that? How do we make sure it doesn't slow vaccinations? It doesn't slow medical care, but nor does it end up locking communities who are close to these hospitals into the kind of consequences that you get when medical waste is dumped on their foot, on their doorstep, when they become sort of an informal landfill and all the consequences of poor health and lack of investment they get as a result. So really thinking about medical waste management has been a critical piece of our response to COVID. And so has the, the issue of inclusion, making sure that those forest dependent communities, for example, all of the, the, the tens of millions of people in the Amazon, for example, who live in often live in very rural areas, often quite isolated, have access to care and to vaccines and what that looks like in making sure those communities are covered too. So that's one of the issues that COVID has really brought up that we've been working on at the intersection of COVID response, making sure everyone is cared for, but not creating longer term issues with environmental justice. Valerie, thank you so much. Katie, would you like to speak next? Sure. Yeah. Valerie um, already covered a lot of it um, nicely. I mean, the plastic is its own pandemic and, it, and it's gotten worse since the, the whole COVID situation because single use plastic has been touted as the solution for a lot of our human needs. Um, so and, and not only that, but there was a lot of policy and things that have been rolled back since the pandemic, things like you know, bag bans and and bring your own cups and reuse and and a lot of those things have been either rolled back or or put on pause. So the the plastic waste crisis has gotten worse, not only in the Western world but but in um, you know places like India and and countries around the globe. Um, and and not only that, but the pandemic has had a huge impact on waste workers. Um, those are people that are on the front lines. Those are people that have been picking up people's waste. And, you know, in a, in a lot of parts of the world, medical waste is not separated from normal waste. So the COVID situation has put a lot of people's lives at, at risk. Um, it, it's also created a lot of fluctuation in the materials marketplace. So uh, it, it has created a whole new um dimension. Um, but I, I would say, especially just um, the convenient culture, um, like even places, for instance, in India, uh, people have gotten very used to ordering takeout food that's coming in, um, you know, all kinds of plastic packaging um, and, and, and ordering online. And so I think since the pandemic, this has gotten even more worse and it, it, and it creates even more challenges for those that are working in this sphere. Um, I also wanted to add something on, on Valerie's mention of Desmond Tutu. There was a quote 
that I, I had been reminded of recently um, that I, I really love because it shows how he was also a systems thinker. And he said something to the effect of, don't just pull people out of the river, go upstream and see what the problem is. And that's something that's very akin to the, the metaphor that we use in systems thinking a lot. You know, if the bathtub is overflowing, do you go and you grab a mop or do you try to turn the bathtub off first? And so we use that a lot to talk about um, plastic waste. Don't just try to clean up the situation, but look upstream to the production and trying to figure out ways to minimize it that way. Katie, thank you. That was so insightful. It just reminds me of the concept. There is no away. Yes. There's, there's no place to throw anything away. Uh, Raul, has the pandemic impacted your work? Certainly. Um, well, Valerie and Katie have covered many of the issues and I fully concur with them. Uh, perhaps uh, being that the case, I could share a more theoretical thought. Uh, the, the global pandemic we are all suffering nowadays, uh, um, have taught me several things. First, we are all connected. We suspected that, but we know for sure we live in the same planet. What happens in one region will impact all the others. Everything is connected. There is not just a thing as an isolated epidemic. Decisions we have made, the way we live, our economies, our habits, our politics, our values, all of this taken together may explain partially perhaps the pandemic and its worldwide spread and its pervasiveness. Perhaps it began the day we decided we didn't want to be hunter collectors anymore and created agriculture, perhaps earlier. There is no specific group way out. Either we understand we should save everyone or the disease will stay among us lurking waiting for its time to reappear. Living under health restrictions have made us contemplate that a different way of life is possible and even perhaps attractive. Less plane travel perhaps, no trans-oceans cruises at all, more time at home, more time for family and friends, more work from home, more time to read and think and walk alone, more time in nature, less consumption, less hectic life, more time for meditation, contemplation, more awareness of what we eat and how we eat. Oh dear, this is looking a lot like a more peaceful life, a more ecological, more ecologically oriented life, a better life for us and for all. And this all uh, should, according to me, include non-human animals as well, and perhaps even beyond that. Raul, may it be so. Thank you. I, I am so hesitant to do this because the conversation has been so rich, but we are at time. And I did want to ask each one of you if you had any closing thoughts or words that you wanted to share. Though, admittedly, Raul, what you just said, that that is hard to top. But Valerie, let's start with you. You know, so often I find myself fighting a two-front war when it comes to the environment. 
On one front, I'm arguing with people that environment is not an obstacle to growth. In fact, it is the pathway to a dignified, green and resilient and inclusive growth. On the other front, I'm I'm often fighting with environmentalists to remind them to put people at the heart of the environment, that we're not saving the environment for its own sake, but we're saving it to make sure, again, that people have a dignified path out of poverty, that they can live wonderful lives at peace. And so for me, I think I'm really hoping that as we all come together, as we all think about 2022 and as we come out of the pandemic, that not only do we build back better, but that we really come out of this and think more about how we can together with peace studies, with environmental justice, with development studies, we really can create a green, resilient and inclusive world. Thank you, Valerie. Katie, would you like to add anything? Yeah, thank you. Um, I don't know if I can top Raul there. Um, I think that's what we should be working for, just uh, more time. And I can see the Thomas Berry rubbing off, the <laughs> spending time contemplating our, our inter- interconnectedness with nature and how we can not only just think about these things, but embody the spirit of, of environmental connection and peace building. And uh, I also wanted to share that uh, I would love for everyone that is tuning in here to be able to follow along with my work. I'm going to be posting more about it on my LinkedIn as well as on Instagram. Um, the Instagram is EcoSeva, um, S-E-V-A. Um, Seva is a Sanskrit word for service, so service to the earth. Um, Ecoseva one on Instagram, I'm going to start sharing about our journey in India and the work that we're doing. So everyone can follow along there. And um, I'm, I'm happy to discuss uh, environmental issues with any um, emerging peace builders. Um, I also wanted to highlight that there is um, a, a new organization. I think it's been around for the last four years the Environmental Peacebuilding Association. Um, that's a really good one for peace builders to get involved with. And there's also the annual, second annual conference is coming up this February. So there'll be lots of um, things that, that people can tune in for. They have a really great resource library, also a job board. So that's, and also a student rate to get involved with the, the association. Um, and I wanted to draw attention also to a, a report that I think does a really good job highlighting um, some of the externalities of waste in the humanitarian sphere. There was a report by the London School of Economics and UNEP called Waste Not Want Not. And it's looking at the unintentioned side effects of um, waste generated by the humanitarian industry in um, Iraq and Yemen. So that's a very interesting report on, on waste and peace building. And thank you for having me here. Katie, thanks so much. Those are excellent resources and ideas in ways that we can get involved. Raul, I think you may have the last word. <laughs> thank you very much, Jennifer. Um, I do not like pandemics uh, or desert, disasters. Certainly, I do not. However, once we are facing a disaster, uh, it seems that the, the best of us show up. Uh, so this is an opportunity. Um, let, let's not waste this opportunity of doing better. Um, I am so grateful 
uh, this conversation, uh, you inspire me. Thank you, dear colleagues. And let's continue doing things, strengthening this peace ecology network. I hope this is not our last meeting and our last activity. There is so much to share, to learn. Finally, I teach law. While formally teaching international environmental law, I hope I will be teaching environmental ethics and bioethics. According to me, that is the same than saying I will be teaching peace studies, a subject learned more than 30 years ago at Notre Dame University. Thank you very much. Thank you, Raul, and thanks to all three of you. We have enjoyed having you so much here at the CrocCast and agreed, I would like this to be the first of many conversations, but thank you so much for all of the good work that you're doing in the world and for bringing us some hope, which is much needed right now. Thank you. You've been listening to the CrocCast. Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Kroc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.